It's March 2006. I'm in Iraq, the youngest member of the combatant commanders in extremist force, modeled after Delta Force. After a successful capture kill mission for a high value target, I think I'm the man and that we're all now on equal footing as brothers in arms. Then it happens. On our very next mission, we are a bird short because an engine was damaged by small arms fire and I get bumped. Master Sergeant John Shrek McPhee grabs me right before he leaves and I'm expecting him to change his mind. But instead, he says, hey, man the QRF while we're gone. I go to the vehicles, turn on the radio, and start working. But mostly, I stew on being left behind the whole time while they're gone. By the time they return to base, having completed a successful mission, I'm enraged and have decided to let John know exactly how I feel. Can I have a minute, John? I ask as he walks into the hangar. He looks at me for a minute. What did you get done while we were gone, he asks. I tell him about prepping everything. Huh. Sounds like someone was chilling out. What do you want? John, I'm the best shot. I'm the most physically fit, and I dominated that last mission. I should have been the first to go, not the first to get pulled. I want to be treated fairly. I know I'm an asset to this team. John just looks at me, his eyes never leaving mine. Go grab your boxing gloves and meet me in the gym, and we'll hash this out. I leave his room. I can't stop smiling. Is this guy nuts? I mean, John is a tough guy, but not only am I going to smoke him, but I will confirm to him just how I am right. When I arrive, my whole team is there wearing their gloves. John tells me that I'm not just fighting him, I'm fighting the whole team. I see what he's doing, but I don't care. One after one, they come after me. Two minute rounds, no rest. The second one guy gets out, a fresh guy gets in. Mario Montese is up first. I beat the snot out of him. By the time I get to my fifth teammate, I'm bleeding a little bit and my head's ringing, but I keep winning. John then calls the first guy back in. I have nothing left for him. He gets his payback. They all do. They rotate until every team member has won a round against me. Okay, John shouts. Everyone starts taking their gloves off and they all begin to walk out. Blood is oozing from my pores. My face and hands are swelling. My lungs are on fire. When everyone but John and me are gone, he walks over to me and says, I don't want to have this conversation again. This moment should have left a powerful imprint on me. I should have picked up what he was trying to tell me, that no one, regardless of talent or skill, is more important than the team. I should have realized that I am not an all-star, that I have a lot to learn. And if I don't, then I will be a liability to the force. But I am Tim Kennedy, and my takeaway is, it took all of those dudes two tries to finally beat me up. That was an excerpt from Scars and Stripes, an unapologetically American story of fighting the Taliban, UFC warriors, and myself, read by the co-author Tim Kennedy. The book, co-written by his good friend Nick Palmiciano, 
tells the story of Tim's life from his rebellious California youth to his rise to become a top-ranked MMA fighter to his experience serving as a special forces sergeant hunting some of the world's most wanted terrorists. Tim has done a lot more, including taking down human traffickers and overseeing a private evacuation of thousands of Americans and allies in Afghanistan during the chaos of 2021. I'm Carrie varro and we chat with Tim today on Army Matters. Hey, hello, everyone. I'm Lieutenant General Retired Leslie C. Smith, the former Inspector General. And today I'm the Vice President for Leadership and Education for Association of the United States Army. And I have one of my great battle buddies, a great friend, Dan Daly. Les, thanks. I'm the 15th Sergeant Major of the United States Army and Vice President of NCO and Soldier Programs. So there's only been 15 Sergeant Majors in the Army? Though there's 16. There's one after me. So one after you. But yeah. you were the 15th. Just, there's only one 15th. Yes, sir. Yeah. That's okay. the way it works. There's so that means have you haven't been around as long as the Inspector General has. <laughs> no, probably haven't been around. No, no, but but farly more important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. That's, right. that's only mildly interesting. Yeah. Come on. Well, Les, it's, uh, it's an honor to co-host you today, and I think the audience is going to enjoy the guest we have today. He is a jack of all trades, I would say, and much, much more. You know, one of the things he's done is he started off as an MMA fighter. What, what do you think about MMA fighting? Have you ever been in a fight? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as a, as a little kid, and I'm trying to remember what it was about. It's been so long ago. Was, it was about something stupid. So where I grew up in Atlanta, it was a rough neighborhood. And so we were always told to try to avoid fights if we could. But I think some kid just picked a fight one day, and I think I smacked him in the head or something. You know, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm a pretty big guy, and I'm bigger now than what I used to be. But even then, it was it was not a good day for this kid. So you chalked um, that up one as a win. That was a win for you. I, I chalk yeah. it up yeah. as a win, but it was yeah. also to me it was embarrassing because yeah. with young men, especially when you get in the fight, it's not a big deal. Five minutes later, you're doing whatever you want to do. Yeah, uh, and that's what I think we we see today that people hold grudges on stuff when in fact. It's over. It's done. Let's move on. Yeah. How about you, Dan? Well, I grew up the youngest of three boys. My parents had an, another son uh, years later, but we were all out of the house. And uh, right. so I was the uh, Saturday morning punching bag. You know, whenever Kung Fu Theater came on TV, I was the <laughs> recipient of the whoopings. But I'd get a good shot in there every once in a while. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, I've had my fights in the, in the barracks and nothing really serious. Most of those turn out to be, you know, we just have a little scuffle and then we go drink a beer together. Move on to the next thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Now, besides being an MMA fighter, this gentleman, Tim Kennedy, he's also, listen to this, a Green Beret. Yeah. A movie personality. A multi-business entrepreneur. Um, and he's dedicated his life to fighting things like human trafficking. He's just an incredible guy. What do you think, Les? He's a modern-day superhero. I don't know what we would call him, but but he's a, he's a great leader. Yeah. We have uh, have this conversation with him because he's he's what we want our, our young people to look up to because he's done it all, and he hasn't been perfect. I'm glad you brought that up. I, I thought of one word when we first started talking this, and actually it was a change of my own personal opinion. I read his resume, and I thought him to be a specific person, and it's probably a life lesson of don't judge a book by its cover. But the one word I would define him, humility. 
I would say resilient. Yeah. Incredible. Think about the things that he went through and all the chances and opportunities that he had to just give up. He's a great leader for our, our army and I think, frankly, our nation. Well, Les, I know our listeners would rather hear Tim than us uh, go back and forth. So I say it's time to ring the bell and start the interview. What do you think? Ding, ding. Let's go. Tim, it's an honor to have you on the show here. Have you always been this way? What was your childhood like? Yeah, my, uh, my, my dad was a police officer. My mom uh, was a 100% committed wife and teacher. So I was homeschooled, as were my brother and sister. Really early on, they recognized that um, I would not adapt well to a, a strict regimented environment. <laughs> um, having, uh, you know, in kindergarten, there's this little girl named Laura LaCary. And uh, one of the guys made fun of her new haircut and said that she looked like a boy. So I followed him up on top of the playscape, punched him in the face and pushed him off, which broke his arm. And then when they took me to the principal's office, when they could still paddle, uh, I got paddled and I looked at the principal and I was like, that didn't hurt. So, so that was the beginning of them very quickly realizing that they'd have to figure out some other ways to, um, to, to keep me focused on school. So Tim, your father was, a, was not just a police officer, but an undercover narcotics officer. He must have ran you in a little bit. It's so funny now when, when people meet, you know, Mike Kennedy, they meet this gregarious, the sweet grandpa, you know, he looks like Santa Claus. He's, he used to have red hair and used to be an Olympic level water polo player that would kick indoors and, you know, shoot pit bulls and steal planes full of cocaine from Pablo Escobar. And I can barely reconcile the two because the man that I remember is obviously not the man that exists today. People change, but um, he was a force. At 300 pounds and, and six foot three, six foot four, he was like one of the smallest guys on their their direct action unilateral narcotics task force. And this is peak war on drugs. You know, this is like, hey, no more drugs are coming across our border era. We're going to fight them in Colombia. We're going to fight them in Mexico. We're going to fight them in our borders. We're going to fight them in Costa Rica. We're going to fight them in um, the Caribbean. This is like the DEA, Bureau of Narcotics Enforcement. He was a force, and now he's just like, hey, grandkids, you want to go to Disneyland? I'm like, what? Yeah. Tim, they say grandkids changes changes you. Yeah, changes things. Dan and I, yeah. We don't have grandkids, so we don't know yet. Yeah, well, it will. <laughs> yeah, I took that from the book, and I'm not going to spoil the book because I want people to go out and buy it and yes, read it. very good book. The Scars and Stripes, it's amazing. But there is one more thing I want to talk about. Um, you experienced tragedy at a young age. And you lost a close friend. Tell us about it, Tim. My best friend, we were um, in Atascadero, California. He was at like a church game night. And uh, they were moving from one house to another house uh, for a slumber party. And a bunch of young men in a car acting like dangerous young men were kind of coming up next to each other on a two-lane road. And as they were next to each other coming around a corner, another car came on the, the incoming oncoming lane and they had a head-on collision. Jared was launched from his car and his brother, Jordan, uh, my brother's best friend, went to work on his little brother trying to save his life. And um, you know, he, he died there that day. And when moments like this happen, it, you know, it, it is this, the shock that has the second and third order effects that 
ripple through and, um, you know, losing my best friend, I, I really kind of lost my identity as to who I was and what I was going to be doing and what my purpose was. And it took a good seven, eight years for me to, to get my life back on track as to what I needed to be doing. Tim, you know, I lost my dad when I was five. So I can relate to losing who you are and what your purpose is. You know, one of the really striking things in your book is how candid you are about the tough times. One of those moments that really stand out is that time when you went into Morro Bay. You stripped down and went into the water and swam until you got completely lost. Can you tell the listeners more about that moment? You know, I, I was very intentional in being transparent and vulnerable. We've been in an era, a, a dangerous era, in my opinion, where everything is curated about everybody's lives. You know, it's a uh, TikTok and Snapchat and Instagram and Facebook. You know, I get to put up whatever I want, however I look the best. I'm posting my PR, you know, like my, my personal record of, of a deadlift or my row or my pull-ups. But, you know, you, nobody sees the struggles and nobody sees the low points. And I think those are the more important moments that people are missing out on. You know, one of the lowest points of my life, um, you know, I was in my early 20s. Um, I was fighting professionally, top 10 in the world. I had just won a big tournament, then fought and I lost. At the same time, the patriarch of our family, my grandpa, greatest generation, World War II, Army Air Corps, um, you know, survived the Great Depression. He's dying of emphysema and every breath is, you know, is slightly less full than his prior breath. And uh, while he's dying on his bed, um, you know, I can't, what used to be my my sanctuary, which is the the Cambria Beach House, I can't even go there because the man that I that I have looked to and aspired to be is just slowly withering away and dying. And this is still in that period where I'm figuring out what my purpose is again. And there's nothing more dangerous than a young man without purpose. And I was a young man without purpose. And it's one of the greatest things I love about our military is we give purpose, direction, motivation. When you have purpose with direction, motivation, man, the things that we can accomplish are, are insurmountable, you know, climbing cliffs and storming beaches and raising flags on Iwo Jima. Like the, that's the things that a young man with purpose can do. I did not have purpose. At this time, you know, I have a few women pregnant all at the same time. None of them are the women that I was actually with. A girl walks into the gym that I kickbox at and she tells me that she has HIV and she was with me after one of my fights at a party after the fight where there was a good chance that I could have contracted HIV from her. And uh, so I go to Morrow Bay, California and um, I take all my clothes off. I drop my wallet and my, my pager onto the sand and uh, yeah, pager, that's right. Yeah, we can relate to that. <laughs> And, uh, and I, I, I wade out into the water and I just start swimming due west into the fog. Another moment of divine intervention, call whatever you want. But there was a woman, um, I'm assuming it was a woman, an old one, because that's who lived in Morro Bay, but I don't know who she was. She called the Coast Guard and said, I just saw a young man walk out into the water and start swimming into the fog. I can swim and I can swim fast. And I swam for about 30 minutes. So I'm guessing I'm maybe a mile and a half to two miles out into this water. I'm in the dense fog and I have no idea which way the beach is. I can't hear it. And I'm just treading water. I'm cold and I'm freezing. Um, the water in Morro Bay is about 55, 53 degrees. 
and I've been out there for about an hour now, still trying to figure out which way to go. You know, just not willing to go into the darkness, sit down to the drink. I just keep swimming. And, uh, you know, this boat, little Coast Guard boat, and they have, they have really cool boats there. They're, um, the Coast Guard has a name for them. I'm not going to give the Coast Guard a lot of cr credit, <laughs> but it's a, rad, it's a really rad boat. It can't be toppled. Like if it gets inverted, it flips back over. Right. It's a pretty cool. And these, uh, these guys come up and there's this captain with his legs dangling over the front of the boat. And he's like, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, man, I'm, uh, I'm swimming. He's like, yeah, I see that. Uh, what's going on? So I, I give him like the bluff, you know, the wave tops of, of what's happening in my life right now. He's like, man, I was going to offer to pull you out, but truthfully, I might just stay in the water if I were you. I'm like, okay. Um, but it's real cold. And he leans over and he looks down at me. He's like, yeah, I see that. And I'm like, dude, the, there's something about a, you know, a seaman's sense of humor that's just cut straight to the bone. And uh, he says, hey, man, I'm going to give you an offer. I'm going to treat your life with a little bit more respect than you have treated your life. And I'm going to give you a chance to get out of the water. Do you want to get out? You know, and he wasn't asking literally. He was asking metaphorically, you know, figuratively, like, this is your chance. This is your one chance to start making a choice that, um, that can start changing the trajectory of your life. Wow. So rather than force you to get on the boat with him, he got you on there another way. I mean, I assume you got on the boat. Leadership comes in lots of different forms, but one of the most important things is this being a man of integrity, character, and truth, transparency. He could have been like, hey, go and get on this boat, son. And I would have responded the exact way that a young man in his 20s would respond. It's like, no, nah, I'll just keep swimming. Instead, he immediately built rapport and he showed interest in me. And that interest connected me to him. And then he gives me an option of making a wrong choice or a right choice. I would have sat there and continued to tread water and drowned because I'm a stubborn young idiot without purpose. But instead, he did the thing that a real leader does, which is find a way to speak to the audience, which is a young man that's hurting in the water. And uh, that's important. Well, you say it right there in the book, in the introduction, the phrase, failure is going to happen. Tell us more about that. I mean, you are not going to find improvement without failure. You know, if you go to the within special operations, we're getting ready to go a direct action, counterterrorism, hostage rescue, whatever. You're doing hundreds of reps inside the house and you're pushing the envelope. You're getting shots outside of the bowling pin. You're making mistakes on the entry. You're not shooting the center. You know, and those mistakes, we then come outside. We identify the mistakes in our AR and we sustain the things that we did right. We identify the things that we need to improve on, but you're not going to improve without making those mistakes in weightlifting, in running, in, you know, jujitsu and boxing, the reason that you learn how to do, to bob and weave is by getting hit. The reason that you learn how to escape a choke is by getting caught in that choke. The way that your body gets stronger in ad adaptation is I try to do a 405 deadlift and I do it four times, but I'm trying to get five times, but I fail on the fourth time and I drop that weight. My body goes, oh man, you just failed. You have to be stronger to be able to do this thing the next time that you try it. So then your body adapts. Your brain is the exact same way. And I think your soul, and I think that your 
discipline and your resolve and your grit, those are all things that are equally connected to your mind and your body. And the only way that you can find that grit is to be challenged and ultimately to fail. I think we need to reiterate that a little bit more. This thing about failing and folks getting trophies just for participating, I think, is is not great. So expound on that a little bit more about, you know, failures that you've had and how that have helped you grow you into the man that you are today. Man, I, uh, I mean, Ranger School, right? You go to do your PT test during the bending phase when you're getting inducted. You're knocking out those reps and it's like 45, 46, 47, 48, 48, 48, 48, 48, <laughs> 48. And you're like, hey, bro, my chest is bouncing off the ground and I'm going to full lockout. And he's like 48. And he's just like looking right at you. And he just wants to see you fail. And he wants to see you not quit. He wants to see you make a conscious decision with intentionality. You can keep calling 48s, but I'm going to keep going until you get, get sick of saying 48, until you give me that 53. Right. And they know exactly what they're doing. They're looking for that quitter. They're looking for you to find a reason to get off that ground and be like, oh man, that, that RI, he just wouldn't give me a, a real rep. Nah, that's, that's not it. You're like, you should have failed every single opportunity leaving, leading up to that point. So when you're down in that front-leaning rest and he's counting that 48 over and over and over again, you've already failed 500 times. Well, you're not going to fail in that moment because that's the moment that you got to shine. But you can't be ready for that without all of the failures leading up to that moment. You know, as young rangers, uh, we're taught failure is not an option. But one of my top 10 leadership tips is it's okay to fail. It's not okay to quit. You were an MMA fighter. I mean, you started fighting at the age of 17 with guys like Chuck Liddell. Tim, what makes a young 17-year-old man want to get into a ring and get beat up? I mean, what, what drives you to that point in life? The goal is to not get beat up. The goal is to beat somebody else up. I mean, painful college was one motivation. You know, when the first time that I, I fought and somebody handed me a few hundred dollars for knocking a guy out in like 25 seconds, I was like, well... This is kind of awesome, but I also, and I think a lot of young men feel they want to be challenged. They, again, back to a young man without purpose. Um, I, I think the things that are infused in our DNA, that strength, that power, even that violence, that those are beautiful things when they're harnessed in a great direction with purpose. When you look at our current generation where we have broken young men that are going and hurting innocent people, that is all of that right, just beautiful, powerful energy being misdirected and misguided, where that same energy directed and guided with purpose in, into something beautiful, like going and stopping fascism where Jews are being murdered during the Holocaust, like, that's awesome. You know, give me those young men. And for me as a 17-year-old, you know, my, my dad, when he put me in martial arts, he knew that if I didn't have a healthy outlet for me to be challenged, for me to see violence, for me to see struggle, that um, I would go and make a mistake, that I would go and hurt something that I shouldn't hurt. And it started directing and shaping the way that I viewed being a protector, being a provider, being somebody that would preserve human life. It is not an easy process. You know, like there was a time where I was grappling with a bunch of guys in the dojo and uh, most of the guys I, I could beat at this point. And one of them caught me in a submission and I, you know, like I get up and I scream this obscenity and Barry Smith walks up with an Eskrima stick. It's like this long bamboo 
pipe size stick and he cracks me in the side of the head. And I look up my, my dad, you know, my six foot four, 300 pound narcotics dad. I'm like, you gonna come over here? And he just leans back and he folds his, his arms and he drops his chin a little bit. And I was like, oh, this is on me. This is my consequence, you know? And then Barry lines everybody up and he says, you know, hey, what is integrity? What is character? He's asking everybody. And I'm just sitting there just humiliated with shame after screaming something and losing my, my resolve and my discipline. He asks what it would have looked like had I tapped and submitted. And then 30 seconds later, I go back out there and I beat the brakes off the same guy. Which one would have looked better? Which one would have been a better way to use that energy or just to be that quitter and to scream an obscenity that because I lost like a loser compared to the drive of a purpose-driven person that's like, all right, give me another round. Come on, please give me another round. Please give me another round. It's so clear to compare these two, and I just hadn't figured it out yet. And then you went on to become a top-ranked fighter, known by thousands, if not millions of fans. A lot of successes and a lot of highs. But since we've been talking about how much you learn from your mistakes and low moments, what would you say was the lowest point in your fighting career? What did it teach you? I've had some low points in my MMA career. I mean, I fought for the world title two different times. I, I won championships, but being called the world champion is a distinction that I, I never earned. Both the world titles that I fought for, I lost. Mm -hmm. Getting to fight for it twice is a rare thing. Getting to fight for it a third time is extraordinarily rare. And uh, I was on the road a winning streak against very, very high-ranked top five opponents, beating contenders, proving that I deserved a third title shot. I was fighting Yoel Romero in the UFC. I made a, a, a mistake at the end of the second round. I knock him out real bad, and um, he, get, he gets saved by the bell. And when he goes back to his corner, he's sitting in his corner, and he is just he's hurting real bad. And his corner cheats in every way imaginable. They knock over the bucket of ice. You know, they pretend that they don't speak English. They put too much Vaseline on his face. You know, they're they're kind of stumbling around and dropping water bottles, just giving him all the time in the world to uh, to not answer the bell. The bell rings, and uh, and I stand up and I walk forward. And John McCarthy, the referee, sends me back to my corner. The rules state that you have one minute and ten seconds to to engage, and if you don't it's a forfeit. So I know the rules because I'm sure you guys are the same. I like to know rules because sometimes I break rules, but I got to know what they are for me to know how to get out of the trouble once I do break them. And that's how I fought. You know, as soon as that 10 seconds went, I just started celebrating. I started pointing to Dana White being like, hey, you're giving me a title fight. Also go ahead and give me the knockout of the night because that was pretty rad. I'm looking for my wife, making sure she knows we're going to have a pretty fun night tonight. And uh, all the while, Yoel Romero sitting in, in his corner, just looking at me. He's trying to get his wherewithal. He's trying to get his wits about him so he can come back up and knock me out. And the whole entire time, I'm leaving the fight and he's fighting to get back in the fight. John McCarthy starts the fight about 30 seconds later and Yuel Romero does just that. He knocks me out. And I lose my, my chance to, to fight again for the title. That's effectively the end of my career. I still argue that those have shaped me to be a better leader, to be a better entrepreneur, to, to be able to write with transparency and vulnerability. I, I can do that as a champion. The ego is a powerful thing. Well, we have to take a quick break here, but we'll be right back to talk to Tim about his army career, hunting human traffickers, and a whole lot more. Have you purchased your AUSA swag yet? Be proud to show your support for AUSA 
which in turn shows your support for the U.S. Army and our soldiers. Check out all AUSA swag at shop.ausa.org. We're back and talking to Tim Kennedy. Now, Tim, I'm sure there are a lot of skills you learned from your MMA career that you've applied in your military service. But what's the one that you think helped you the most? Oh, man, there's there's so many things from being a martial artist and an athlete that makes you better in the military. When you get to special forces selection, when you see athletes that are coming in, especially high-level athletes, you, you know that they have such a better chance of success in getting selected because they've already put themselves voluntarily through so much struggle and so many challenges and so many failures. So by the time they get to here, there is no quit. They've already failed plenty of times, but here there's no way that you're going to get one of them to quit. And it was no different for me. I tell people frequently, the only way that you could have got any of us after 9-11 that were in special forces selection, almost every single one of the guys that I went to selection with were collegiate athletes. The only way that you would have got us to leave that place was on a stretcher. And the only way you would have gotten us on a stretcher is to sneak in while we're sleeping with lead pipes. And I'm not being like cheeky when I say that. I'm being dead serious. Now, Tim, can you explain to the listeners what the 18 X-ray program is and why you chose to do it? So, you know, everybody remembers where they were on September 11th. Yes. I remember where I was. And, um, you know, a couple hours later, I was down at a recruiter's office and there's about a thousand people in front of me, all of us trying to, to find out how we can get a uniform and go somewhere. It took a while for me to really talk to a recruiter and I'm talking to the Marines, I'm talking to the Navy, I'm talking to the Army. Here is the first time that I'm I'm having direction. I don't have purpose yet, but I now have a direction. I know where I want to go and, and the things that I want to be doing. Right. It's really the fastest way to find the people that did this to us. When I finally get an Army recruiter in front of me and the Army recruiter is like, hey, we have this new program. It's called the 18 X-ray program where we were taking collegiate athletes and we we're putting them directly into special forces selection. You know, you get through basic training, you get through infantry school, you get through airborne school, and you get through the first attritter gate called SOPC, Special Operations Preparation Course. And then you get to go directly to selection. And if you are selected, you get to go to the Q course. I have a lot of mixed feelings about the program, but at the time it sounded like the best thing in the world for me. Then it was just waiting. They wanted me to finish grad school and they wanted me to get a slot. And it took, you know, six months to get down to MEPS and go take a D lab and then go and uh, finally get your ship date. You know, so it took two years for me to go from 9-11 to on a bus, I'm going to basic training. But I didn't know a way to do it faster. You've done a lot of missions. Can you describe what was probably the most important mission that you undertook? Iraq was... Um, we were with special missions units and within special forces, we have special teams and special companies that had special jobs. I don't know why I was there, but I was. We got in lots of gunfights and we got lots of bad guys and we did lots of great things. Afghanistan was something different. In one mission in particular, as we're, you know, we're in Uruzgan, the Uruzgan Valley, making our way to Firebase Anaconda, we were ambushed. And um, it was uh, from 
the ID and RPG and machine gun nest initiated ambush to four days later when we finally made it to Firebase Anaconda, we were in a, a tick, troops in combat, the whole entire time. There were the, the vehicle in front of me, literally everybody died inside of it during the initiation of the ambush. In my vehicle, I don't think there's a guy that got out of that vehicle without a purple heart. It was one of those gunfights where our ammo resupply, which could never get there fast enough as they're trying to come in, or like, I don't think we can make it in. When you have Spectre gunships that are about, you know, 30, 45 minutes into this engagement saying, hey man, we're whiskey on ammo, we gotta go back. When A-10s are like, this is too danger close. And we're like, if you don't do this, we're all gonna die. Back to failure, had the, the SFODAs that were there on the ground, had they not been teams with team sergeants that had pushed the pocket and pushed the envelope in training leading up to this deployment, I'm sure every one of those guys would have died in that valley. It changed everything and every perspective that I would have about who I was as a teammate from that point forward happened in the Valley of Afghanistan. Tim, you know, we could literally do two, three, four podcasts on your military career, which is incredible, which still continues to this day, as a matter of fact. But I want to talk about the skills you learned as a fighter, as a soldier, and put it in something that you became passionate about, and that was human trafficking. How'd you get into this? It was really being with 7th Special Forces Group, traveling to South America and the Caribbean, I would see I mean, the worst thing that you can make a soldier do is put him in a place where he can't do anything. We have this thing in us to, to preserve and to protect those around us. We have soldiers that will jump on top of a grenade to save their, their teammates to the left and to the right, you know, and they, they know what just looks like. But then we have to go to these places where we can't do things, right? Where I'm going to a KLE, a key, a key leader engagement in Afghanistan, the warlord that I'm going to talk to, he walks in and he has a 13-year-old girl with him who is his wife. And he has a nine-year-old boy that has all the makeup on his face. Mm -hmm. And I'm here to talk to that warlord. And I need that warlord to do things for me. So I can't do the things that I know are right, like beat him into a bloody pulp for being a pedophile. Mm -hmm. But that's what I want to do. Yeah. But I, I can't do that because I'm in this position. Or I'm in South America or I'm in the Caribbean. I was in Trinidad. And um, like this is before President Obama was coming in. We were doing a PDSS, a pre-deployment site survey for Secret Service. So Secret, we were an advanced team. Secret Service was coming in. I identified all the places that I would put a sniper if I wanted to be a sniper to try and engage the president. I'd hand this packet over to the Secret Service and they would put people in all those different rooms. You know, like there's huge tradecraft, how these guys do all these things. But while I'm in Trinidad, I needed to learn the center of gravity for who is good and who is bad. So like we were going down to the bad areas of town. We'd go to the bars, go to the strip clubs. We'd find informants and humans. We're not buying prostitutes or, or anything, but we're seeing who is buying these people. And we're seeing who's running the money and who's commanding the, the, the security guards at the door. I'm watching these young girls get shuffled in here and watching these young girls get shuffled out the back, but I can't do anything. It just ate at my soul. My hands were tied because I, I was there in a capacity that I couldn't effectively do the thing that I knew I should have been doing, which is like kick in that door and grab every somebody, every person in there, put them in flex cuffs, drag them out the down to the, the embassy and rescue every one of these girls. Can't do that. But the first time I had the opportunity to, to start working with NGOs, uh, non-government org organizations and, and nonprofits, 
that focused on human trafficking, it came with me a, a lot of experience and contacts that I was able to leverage to try and have positive effect on something that was just like, just eating at my soul. Yeah, that's good. Uh, like Dan said, we could talk about this for a couple of hours, but you know, we, we got to get ready to close. You know, you're a TV personality, an entrepreneur, a trainer, and a father. How have you been able to balance the family life and dangerous ventures and the entrepreneurship over the years? I look for dead space. I look for these black times that are just wastes, and I just cut them from my life. And if there's something that I can relegate or delegate, I just hand that off and I push that off. That's not something I need to do. I have these brilliant men and women around me. You know, we color coat things. So if it's red, it's something that I have to directly affect. If it's yellow, it's something that I need to know about but it's not anything I need to do right now. And then it's green. It's something that, yeah, we're handling it, but here's your purview. Here's the bluff. Here's the, the essay on it and we'll handle the rest. And with that, I get this battle rhythm where people ask, how can you do all this volume of work? Man, I have purpose. I have direction and I'm pretty motivated because I have the most amazing family on the planet with the most amazing colleagues and associates that I get to work with. Like, why wouldn't I be? Shame on me if I'm going to waste one moment doing the wrong thing. When I'm going to sit down and play video games, if I'm going to go smoke a cigar and play poker, all the while I could be at the lacrosse field with my son or I could be in the gym doing weights. Right before I came here, I was in a cold water immersion after I did a blood flow restriction workout before I get on this podcast with you amazing fellas. You know, like make good use of your time. Yeah. Dan, he's making us look bad, brother. Uh, no, I love it. Yeah, I love man. it. I'm the now, same now way. Now I got to go do another workout. Come on. <laughs> go ahead, Dan. One last question for you, Tim. If Tim today could go back and tell private Tim Kennedy one thing, what would he say? Uh, nothing. I would kick him in the teeth and I would walk <laughs> out. I'm serious. Every one of those failures and every one of those struggles and every one of those mistakes, I still think back to the shame and humiliation that I hold right now of thinking about what I said to my team sergeant when he got back and he stepped off that helicopter. Like in that shame and humiliation, still to this day, when I walk out this door and I go to talk to somebody out there, that comes with me. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't have learned a lesson had that not been present. Maybe I'd say pack extra grenades in 2008. That, that would have been useful, but uh, nah, nothing else. Now that's awesome. Dan, I completely agree. Tim, you know, if you hadn't gone through those things, you would not be the man you are today. This has been really fun, but we're out of time. My daughter lives in Austin, so next time I'm down there, I'm going to come find you. And maybe we'll get a chance to put Lesh in the ring with you, too. I can't wait to see you. I'm going to buy you some coffee. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim. To all our listeners, thanks for joining us. Army Matters is brought to you by the Association of the United States Army, the U.S. Army's Professional Association, member-supported, Army-connected. Visit us at AUSA.org for more information or to become a member. Your membership helps AUSA continue to carry out its mission, educate, inform, and connect with the Total Army, our industry partners, and supporters of a strong national defense. Today's episode was hosted by Lieutenant General Retired Les Smith and SMA Retired Dan Daly, and anchor hosted by Carrie Barrow Heckes. Anthony Del Call is the producer and writer, and Andy Bosnack is the supervising sound editor. Unzinga Curry is the executive producer, and the senior producers are Carrie Viral Heckes and LaSharon Duncan. Special thanks to the honorable Patrick Murphy, Joe Craig, Douglas Ladd, Lauren Hall, and Terry Perriman for their help. Be sure to subscribe to Army Matters wherever you get your podcasts, and please leave a review. 
As you know, we love seeing stars in the Army, especially if it comes in the form of a five-star review. AUSA's Army Matters podcast, primary purpose is to entertain. The podcast does not constitute advice or services. While guests are invited to listen, listeners, please note that you're not being provided professional advice from the podcast or the guest. The views and opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of AUSA. For questions or to provide topic recommendations, email us at podcast at AUSA.org. I'm with Sharon Duncan. Hope you have a great Army day. Hua.